Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, a podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of AdvaMed. And today we're pleased to have with us Dr. Jeff Shuren, director of the Center for Devices and Radiological Health at the FDA. The center is responsible for fostering innovation and ensuring the safety, effectiveness, and quality of all medical devices and radiation-emitting devices, like the cell phone you might be listening to this podcast on right now. Before becoming the center's longest-serving director in 2010, Dr. Shuren held various policy and planning positions and leadership roles within the FDA, starting in 1998 including a year as an FDA detailee with the Senate Health Committee under the legendary leadership of Senator Ted Kennedy. He holds a bachelor's degree and an MD from Northwestern University and a law degree from the University of Michigan. Well, Dr. Sheeran, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. Well, uh, thank you, Scott, and it's Jeff. Terrific to be here, too. Most of us know you very well, Jeff, as the director of the center at FDA that oversees medical devices and technologies. Not many of us know you as a person, though. So I thought out maybe today we would start out just getting a little better understanding of the Jeff Shuren uh, that some of us may not know and what motivates you. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, Jeff, and why you got into practicing medicine. I grew up in New York, mostly on Long Island. I like to fix things and figure out how they worked. So when I was a kid, I I built models and gadgets, and I also took apart the appliances in our house, although much to my mother's displeasure, I didn't always put them back correctly. I became interested in how people worked, and that led me to an interest in the human brain and medicine. I thought it was actually pretty cool. And how long did you practice medicine, Jeff, before you jumped out of that and into the FDA and government policy space? Oh, I was out of med school between that and then going into public policy each years in medicine and then over to law school and out to public policy. So you've got a bachelor's, a JD, and an MD. Is that right? Yes. That's an impressive background. And all of them at Northwestern or? The undergrad and uh, med school was Northwestern and then uh, law school at Michigan. So talk about how the medical degree and the law degree have really helped you as you've gotten into the area of public policy and regulatory policy in the healthcare space. How have those two degrees informed how you think and do your job at FDA? Well, you know, it's interesting that the FDA really is that interface of science and medicine with sort of the legal regulatory side. And having an understanding of both has been very helpful to me in navigating the waters around public policy. Yeah. And you've been at FDA now for how many years, Jeff? Well, I'll say on and off for 23. So probably in total about 20, 21 years at FDA. And and how many years as director? I came in the fall of 2009 as acting, became permanent in January 2010. Okay. And that puts you probably at one of the longest serving center directors, I would expect, uh, given your time there. Is that right? Yes. I don't know if that's a good notoriety or a bad notoriety. (laughs) 
looking at what we, what you've accomplished there over your time, I think it's uh, I think it's a very very good thing. So, you and I also, Jeff, have something in common. We both uh, worked in the Senate for a period of time, and you spent I think a year or so working for Ted Kennedy, a renowned senator, the Lion of the Senate, as they used to call him, on the Health Committee. Reflect on your experience working for Senator Kennedy and and how that's kind of informed your thinking on public policy and what you learned from him. Certainly a very, very nice and uh, remarkable person. I was always impressed that he understood the details and the implications of the legislation that he was dealing with. Uh, Truly amazing. But What I find also remarkable is that in one respect, he's known to hold certain views on one side of the spectrum, but also appreciated how you have to be pragmatic if you want to get something done on Capitol Hill and the willingness to roll up his sleeves, work with others and problem solve. I think it says a lot when someone like Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, who can have, you know, very to come from, you know, different political spectrums, can be good friends, work together, problem solve on behalf of the American people. And I think that sort of uh, spirit, when you see that on any side of the aisle, really uh, speaks well and is so important if we can get things done in our country. Yeah, you're right. And it seems like to me, I will not I will not put words in your mouth. I worked in the Senate in the 90s as well. I think you were there in 99, 2000 range. It feels like there's less of that sort of bipartisan problem solving that goes on now than it did when I was there and maybe when you were there too, Jeff. Is, is that your sense or do you see it differently from where you sit now? Oh, my, my perspective is it has changed. And it's still my hope that we will move back to times where people can appreciate their different perspectives, but ultimately find the common ground and for the common good. It's doable. I just hope we haven't lost that spirit in our country. Yeah, you're right. I I think it's doable as well. I, I reflect oftentimes back on my time working in the Senate and what a great experience was. I'll I'll tell you a story that was funny. I was working in the Bush administration at the time, right after 9-11, and you remember when the anthrax attack hit the United States Senate. I was at HHS, which you might remember, and had a a nice office space there. The Senate got hit by the anthrax attacks, and they cleared out the entire building. And I was out of the office uh, for most of the day, came back into my office, and sitting in my office at my desk was Senator Ted Kennedy. And (laughs) He said to me as I walked in the door, he said, Scott, we um, we got kicked out of our office and I thought you guys could keep us down here for a little while. And it just <laughs> struck me, you know, I reflect back now, what a different time that was, that he felt comfortable enough to come down to the secretary's office and basically house himself there and put some of his staff there for several weeks, right, while we were going through a very difficult time. I'm not sure that would occur today, but it's just such an interesting reflection of what the Senate was like in the 90s. I suspect you saw things like that, too. No, I did. Now you're making me, you know, start to reminisce. And I always like to be the person looking to the future. If you take a tour of his office when he was back there, that was a lot of reminiscing, probably, as you remember walking through and looking all the pictures, the amazing history that he had just in his Senate office. It was a it was a fascinating place to visit. No, it was uh, it really was uh, 
you know, more uh, a, a testimonial. It was more like a museum. Um, and yeah. I had the pleasure to also spend time in his hideaway in oh, the right. Senate, too, and just yeah. a lot of personal memorabilia there. Yeah, it is amazing. I think, Jeff, if if I understand correctly, you and Senator Kennedy may have something else in common. He was a dog lover, and he had a wonderful dog that he used to bring around with him a lot of different places. In his office, he, he would have it at our office when he would come to visit oftentimes. And I understand uh, you're, you love dogs as well. Is that right? Oh, I do. Well, I had two. I lost one, unfortunately. But uh, mm. yes, I, I have a dog now and uh, just love him to pieces. And what kind of dog do you have? A cockapoo. Maybe ah. not the most manly kind of dog, but uh, he is my <laughs> little buddy. And uh, yeah, Cayman. Cayman's his name. I, I have a uh, golden doodle. So in a similar fashion, people will tease me about my little curly white dog. But uh, but I love <laughs> my dog, too. And he's a good dog. And he, he he never requires me to talk about medical devices and technology when I come home. So I enjoy that. Yeah, well, actually, my dog never wants to hear from me in the first place, so I, uh, it's very simple. <laughs> well, let's shift to your time at, uh, at FDA and CDRH. When you came into that job, I think CDRH and the device industry itself was in a very diff- different place, I think, than we are today. Can you reflect back, Jeff, on your time in the past 10 years, your vision when you started there in that role, and how the center has changed over the last 10 years to get where we are today? Well, as you alluded to, it was a different time a decade ago. You know, innovators were bringing their technologies overseas first due to increasing review times and lack of predictability and transparency in the FDA's pre-market review process. Then on the other hand, I mean, some of the patient, consumer, payer, provider groups were concerned about unsafe devices on the U.S. market and inadequate evidence for many of the devices under the 510K pathway. And we did a deep dive into our pre-market program. We reported on our findings and made recommendations to the public, put it out there for public comment, and then we committed to turn the program around, not waiting for additional funding or new authorities. And I think since then, we've made great strides. And Our North Star has been the vision we put out for the center, and our vision for CDRH reflects both what we set out to accomplish and our measure of success. And as you know, it begins, patients in the U.S. have access to high-quality, safe and effective medical devices of public health importance first in the world, just recognizing that protect side of our public health mission, assuring the devices high-quality, safe and effective but also that promote side of our public health mission that we are advancing medical device innovation and assuring timely patient access to uh, devices of public health importance. And that's what First in the World is all about, just a good metric for timely patient access. It's a very good summary of it. And I want to hone in on that advancing innovation piece because I think over the course of the last 10 years, the pace the speed and the innovation that has occurred in the medical device and technology field has really been historic. The the number of things we've accomplished in the last 10 years versus the previous 50 years is remarkable. Do you ever remember a time where the pace of innovation has been so fast as we've seen in the past five or 10 years? 
I have not. And I think if we were having this same conversation, you know, 10 years from now, you would be making the same comments. You know, just in the past five years or so, I've never seen things accelerate, you know, so fast. This is the trajectory that we're on. And I expect that increasing pace of innovation, well, certainly for emerging science, will continue. Whether or not we'll see that happen for innovation in med tech here in the U.S., is sort of another story, because there are challenges that we will need to address. When you think of the different areas of technology innovation, one of the areas that has stood out to me for some time, at least the past five or seven years, has been in the in the diabetes space. And the pace of innovation with CGMs, with connected devices, with glucose monitoring sy- systems, with insulin pumps, has really been remarkable. I mean, I my daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, Jeff, as you know, about 11 years ago. The difference between the way she was treated when she was diagnosed versus how a kid would be treated today with type 1 diabetes is night and day. And much of that has gone through the center, right? Reflect on that, the pace of innovation in the diabetes space and what you've seen. Well, we've seen dramatic changes over the past few years, and I think that's a constellation of industry making important advances, as well as the patient community really not only expecting new technologies and improvements, but I think reaching out and collaboratively working with the industry to achieve those developments. It is a very unique micro-ecosystem in that sort of working relationship and activism on the part of the, of the patient community. You know, when I think about patient scientists, the first community that comes to mind is diabetes. And in fact, we felt this space was so important to advance that we took steps to try to get out in front of a totally closed-loop autonomous system by putting out our regulatory expectations kind of ahead of the fact of the technology being ready for prime time so that we could try to facilitate those technologies coming to market. And in fact, working with a number of the developers, and you know the story we have with with Medtronic, essentially, as they were looking at their pathway and the different iterations of technology they would make, kind of looked at them and said, that's great. But we're interested in sort of, you know, three moves down the line. Let's talk about what we can do to shorten that development time frame. And that's what we did. And I think ultimately, and to the credit of the of the company and for others involved, shortened that time frame to get the very first such product out in the marketplace by years. Yeah, it is amazing what's uh, happened there. But you've also seen tremendous innovation in the cardiac space, in in orthopedics as well, in robotic surgery, honestly, which has been remarkable where we are today versus where we are 10 years ago when you took over the role at CDRH. When you look, Jeff, into the future now about the next 10 years for the center, and uh, of course, we hope you're still there 10 years from now, but what are some of the things you're focused on for the next 10 years for the center What's your vision for the future of FDA as we hit this innovation curve that's uh, moving so quickly? Well, I think we have to, you know, think about a different kind of FDA. If we're going to be well prepared to deal with the kinds of emerging science that we see today, 
and I think a much more global marketplace than we have seen in the past. We can't truly rely on our past laurels. And at the same time, we could take advantage of the innovations in technology to support the work of the FDA. A lot of the developments in artificial intelligence can be brought to bear. And our ability to move away from a truly stage gate kind of approach in the evaluation of technology to a much more fluid mechanism that takes advantage of learnings across the total product life cycle to best facilitate important technologies that are safe and effective getting to the marketplace, right. doing it outside of our traditional approaches. Yeah. That's gonna require some changes and that's not just about assuring FDA is on the leading edge of science and we've got you know, the right people at the center and the right numbers. It's more than just having the enabling technologies for us to use. It will come down to, to even rethinking the paradigm, the regulatory paradigms that we apply to more modern day technologies. Yeah, that that's a great point. And it makes me wonder, Jeff, uh, thinking back a few years ago when, and I know you were involved in this as well, the passage of the 21st century Cures Act, which was under the Obama administration, but was one of the great bipartisan accomplishments, I think, in the last 10 years or so in the healthcare space. It makes me wonder if we need to think about the next version of that or some new uh, changes so that we're prepared for what's to come in the future. What are your general thoughts on, on 21st century cures before and whether or not we need to begin to think about that going forward? I think cures, um, you know, had a very positive impact on our system. I mean, first off, it had codified in the statute and it expanded the scope of our expedited access pathway program. And that was for supporting expedited development and review of breakthrough devices. And so that became, you know, the new iteration of the breakthrough devices program. And I think that is starting to accelerate access to important technologies. Certainly, 21st century cures increase the eligibility cap for the humanitarian use devices, and that went from 4,000 to 8,000 individuals in the U.S. a year. And while that hasn't had really the big impact we were hoping it would have, I do think it's highlighted the need for a fundamental rethinking of what the regulatory approach to devices for small populations you know, should be. Right. Um, and of course, you know, 21st century cures eliminated, you know, the requirement for using local IRBs, gave us a lot more flexibility for promoting efficiencies in the clinical trial ecosystem, certainly advanced the use on at least burdensome principles, and it clarified, you know, a medical device or at least software functionalities that wouldn't fall under the, the medical device bucket and, you know, brought that clarity into the space. But as I mentioned, for things like uh, small populations, there is a need for revisiting the law. In fact, on a personal note, I have said this publicly, the framework we use today was designed over 40 years ago. It was mm. literally developed with my grandmother's technology in mind, Yeah, not for the things we see today. Right. And we should really sit down and re-envision 
what that framework should look like. This isn't about changing the U.S. standard of you know, reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness. It's about how do we meet that standard in today's world with today's advances. And I think we can do it in ways that would be far better tailored to the technology, would be more efficient, would lead to more timely patient access, but on the same time would have better data sets for supporting that technology. I think there's a way to do this that's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, very well said. It, it reminds me that a lot of people don't understand the importance of having good public-private collaboration on the front end and on the back end of everything we do because we can only be successful developing new technologies if we're in communication with the agency that regulates for safety and effectiveness. And you all can only regulate well if you understand what we're trying to develop, too. And if there's not that public-private partnership, then we're not going to get to where we need to be five or ten years from now. And you've seen that from the government side as well, right? Well, I have. And, you know, we've been a big proponent of advancing public-private partnerships, uh, Medical Device Innovation Consortium uh, right. being one such example. We also have been taking this to a whole nother level in our strategic priority on collaborative communities. You know we engage in collaboration right. all the time, but that tends to be you know, one-offs of particular projects with particular parties. And collaborative communities is looking to the community itself to identify what's important to it to engage in solving shared problems and achieving shared outcomes. And in that respect, the FDA participates not as the leader, but as a member of that community. And if the community comes up with solutions that they find meet their needs, if we believe it's in the best interest of public health, it's not contrary to our statutory mandates, then we are gonna be likely to adopt it as our own. And in this respect, it goes beyond even a public-private partnership. It's all members of that ecosystem getting together. And we committed to be a part of, you know, at least 10 by the end of calendar year 2020. And we did. We're in fact now a part of 11 with several more on its way. And we're starting to see the interest in collaborative communities truly blossom. And it's exciting for us because now it's more than just achieving particular outcomes. We're seeing members of an ecos of the community come together building relationships that they never had before. And this is, you know, with you know, industry and patients and providers and sometimes payers getting together, working together, and building those bonds that are going to take us years into the future. Yeah. Yeah, very, very well said and such an important part. I, th I think of not only what you do, but what we need to do as well as an industry. I think jumping ahead, Jeff, and, and, and reflecting back a little bit as well on what you've been through in the past uh, year or, or I think 15 months now with, with COVID and the pandemic challenges that you've, you've experienced, there was probably never a more important time for the private sector and the public sector to collaborate to try to address the challenge of this pandemic. And you saw that up front and early in the diagnostic testing space. 
Can you uh, give us a little bit of reflection on your experience in the past year, some of the lessons you've learned, and and what have you learned that's going to carry forward, I think, uh, beyond the pandemic? Well, as I've said before, you know, one of the greatest tragedies of this current pandemic and those in the past would be if we did not learn from these experiences and not just how we can be better prepared for the next outbreak, but how we can take the lessons learned to better serve patients at all times. For example, one of the lessons learned is the value of regulatory flexibility. When the public health emergency was declared, we were able to leverage our emergency use authorization authorities. It allowed us to better tailor what we needed to the technology, gave us the ability to adapt very quickly as circumstances on the ground changed. And a second key lesson learned was the value of early and active engagement uh, with sponsors. And during COVID-19, and as in the case with the other public health emergencies, we established a pre-emergency use authorization process. And through that, developers could interact with center experts in real time, you know, through emails and phone calls. They could provide data for review on a rolling basis. And as a result of that regulatory flexibility and engagement, the development, review, and authorization of devices occurred much more rapidly than would otherwise happen under standard review. I mean, for example, we were able to facilitate the development, validation, authorization, and deployment of tests in weeks rather than traditionally months to a year or longer. Right. And in the beginning of the pandemic, we were also routinely you know, authorizing new tests, sometimes two or three days, often within one day of receiving the EUA submission. So, so far, you know, as a result of that, we've granted emergency use authorization to over 700 medical devices, and that includes over 370 tests and collection kits. And we've granted also full marketing authorization, more than 600 devices. So over 1,300 medical devices in all for COVID. And I think regulatory flexibility and engagement should apply in peacetime. Right. You know, so as we look to the future, we should consider how to make that level of regulatory flexibility that we had with COVID a routine practice by having the ability to tailor the regulatory paradigm and the evidence required for full marketing authorization to the technology and its tenant use in the least burdensome manner, but still meet, you know, that U.S. standard reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness. You know, and that's what I kind of think is a new, as we move to a new regulatory paradigm for medical devices, we also need the ability, you know, to rapidly develop and issue guidance to establish right. and adjust policies in near real time um, as circumstances warrant. And as I mentioned, this, this would require a change in the law, but it would allow us to operate in parallel with emerging science and, and in fact go more than that, allow us to be out in front of it. And then having that capacity to engage as we have during COVID would also be a game changer. And if I asked rhetorically, you know, your options are you can request a formal meeting and wait weeks to meet and get feedback, like in the case of a pre-submission meeting, and then request another such meeting if you have follow-up questions, or you could pick up the phone and talk to someone who will continue a dialogue with you, get the right experts and even stakeholders right. involved, you so chose, and work with you collaboratively to problem solve, which would you choose? Right, right. 
Looking back just for a second, you mentioned the 1,300 devices that were approved during COVID. When did you realize, Jeff, the volume that you were going to face with COVID and the devices and tests, diagnostic tools that were going to come through? And how much of that shifting resources from the previous work to the COVID work, how did that impact the agency and the people there? Well, we certainly realized, you know, early on in the pandemic, um, there was going to be a need for more technologies, either because we didn't have those available beforehand. So think about tests for COVID. And secondly, we were dealing with shortages. And one of the most important way of dealing with shortages, we need more product out there. And then it became incredibly clear as we had lots of developers stepping up to the plate and coming to us, either thinking about or having technology. And and that went even outside, you know, traditional med tech industry. We had folks from the apparel industry, from aeronautics coming in the door, looking to help. Truly just a tremendous effort by industry and others stepping up to the plate in the pandemic. Of course, on the flip side, um, we've seen essentially a tsunami of submissions coming in the door. So 2020, calendar year 2020, we received over 17,000 traditional pre-market submissions, you know, a variety of right. types. A little bit more than in recent years, which are over 16,000, still a lot. And then we received over, you know, 5,500, it was almost 5,700 pre-emergency use authorizations and emergency use authorization, you know, requests. And so that resulted in like a overall increase of pre-market submissions, like eight, 38%. So yeah. not surprisingly, that unprecedented workload began to significantly strain the center resources as we were prioritizing COVID work. And particularly, you know, that impact was, you know, in particular impact on uh, our review of IBD files, because they've been inundated more than any other part of the center. Right. So, you know, some parts of the center have been more impacted by the pandemic than others, but every office has been impacted, you know, one way or the other. I mean, to deal with this, we've had to reallocate staff from some parts of the center to other parts to help out. And in total, more than 50% of our staff and managers have been directly involved in our uh, COVID response. Wow. Uh, while many others then picked up, you know, extra non-COVID work just to support what we were doing. And, uh, you know, I'm so proud of our, of my colleagues. They have truly been working nights and weekends mm-hmm. just to keep up with the work volume and all the while dealing with pandemic-related challenges themselves at home like everybody else. And, you know, to deal with this, though, we have been taking steps to reduce the backlog of COVID-related submissions and, you know, steps now, and this is really allowing us to address the backlog of non-COVID submissions. And certainly our goal is to get back to normal. Do you get the sense yet that we're starting to get back to normal, Jeff, both the pandemic, which feels like the trend is good right now. We don't want to take anything for granted, obviously. But do you feel like we're getting more back to normal and you'll be able to get the backlog back in a place where both industry and FDA is more comfortable soon? I do. Most parts of the center are kind of, I would say, back to normal. The parts of the center, you know, office technology, one that has uh, ventilators and uh, respiratory assist devices and office technology, 
four that's got personal protective equipment. They're getting close to normal on uh, pre-market submissions. Uh, we've stated publicly it's going to take us a little bit longer on the pre on the pre-sub meetings, and right. so we're committing you know to 120 days. Uh, but that that's you know going to get back on track. It's primarily with our office technology seven around IVDs that okay. uh, we're still kind of working things through. We have committed, and we will in the next few weeks, make sure that every pre-mark, non-COVID pre-market submission that was held up is moving forward. It may not move, they may not move as fast as they otherwise would, but they're gonna move forward and we're gonna reach closure. Pre-submission meetings are a bit more of a challenge. So unless it pertains to a device it's a part of COVID, or it's a break pertains to a breakthrough device, or for a companion diagnostic, we've sort of told the community we're not going to be able to have that pre-submission meeting and probably not get back to that until 2022. Things might change, and if they do, and we can get back to the pre-sub meetings, we'll plan to do it. But right now, we just feel uncomfortable making that commitment because right. not only are we getting through a lot of the, the COVID work, but we know we're gonna also be getting submissions in the door for those products that have an emergency use authorization that are then seeking full marketing authorization. That's just gonna be several waves right. of additional work coming through. Those pre-sub meetings are so important and I can understand why uh, you've had the delays because of the other volume of work, but are there some things that we can look for, Jeff, that may change or resources or issues that you need help with that will allow us to get back to those pre-sub meetings before 2022? Are there any markers that stand out that we could watch for or we could work together with you on? Well, for starters, we did get some additional funding from Congress, and we're very, very appreciative of that. That's helping us you know, bring on board at least term employees because it's it's right. time limited funding and we're taking advantage of some contractor support as well and th and that will will certainly help us move forward and we will get back to normal like i said most of the center will be back to normal in 2021 some are already there in vitro diagnostics we're looking more towards 2022 but it does beg that question for the future, and that's kind of back to the point that raised on engagement. Right. Pre-sub meetings are important to developers, and right. the requests we receive continue to go up. And if anything, all we hear is people want more. And for those who had a taste of what life was like with COVID, where they literally were dealing with their reviewer or other folks in real time, you know, sometimes several right. times in a day, back and forth. I've had some companies tell me they never want to go back to right. the non-COVID situation. And for us, that's something for us to talk about. Right. Do we want to have that kind of engagement? Should that be the new normal? So rather than going back to the old days of pre-COVID, should we be looking to a new kind of future where the kind of engagement we have in COVID and even more so becomes the norm. Right. That's the early and active engagement that you mentioned earlier in the lessons learned. Is it going to require an act of Congress to help us get there? Or is this something that you feel like can be done regulatorily or through other, other means? 
I don't think we need Congress. I think we just need the capacity. Okay. That's what it comes down to because it's a lot more time and effort. But as we have found, it can be a game changer for developers. Right. And ultimately, that's benefiting patients. If we can get great technology, you know, developed, evaluated, authorized, and we're talking about Let's not focus on shrinking a few days here or a few weeks in pre-market review. We should be shrinking months to years mm. in the development evaluation side. And can we even go further and facilitate even what's happening you know, afterwards as we get into coding and coverage and reimbursement and adoption in the community? That will change you know, the ecosystem around med tech. You know, when I talked about the challenges we have to face, when you asked me, what is, what do I think about, you know, innovation for the future? I see big threats. And we've got to be thinking about how that innovation engine in the U.S. stays supercharged. Right. And if we can really make medtech that time and development evaluation beyond much more shortened and much more predictable, you're going to drive more investment into med tech. That's really going to keep the engine going. And ultimately, we will see that great technology getting out to the patients who need them and the providers who want to use them in significantly shorter time. I think back, you raised diabetes. Yes, I want to go think about those circumstances where we shortened Literally, the time it hit the U.S. marketplace by about three years. Why are yeah. we not doing that across the board? Yeah, it's a great point. And I'm thinking about that early and active engagement and trying to think structurally how that would work. And it sounds like maybe, Jeff, what you're thinking about is essentially having liaisons for companies that can help work through a process before you get into the regulatory system formally. Is, is, is that the right way to think about it? I do. I couldn't agree with you more, Scott. That is absolutely the the right idea. Okay. And you start those conversations very early in the process. And as a result of that, then you feel like you can shorten the timeline to approval and then get into the coverage discussion much earlier than maybe we are today when that still languishes a bit, especially when we're dealing with the federal programs. That's absolutely right. And Also, starting with that early engagement, it's not just even engaging earlier, it's engaging differently and moving from what has been much more formal interactions, you know, and setting up for the formal meetings that we are dealing much more with a dialogue. And we try to do this a little bit with breakthrough devices, but we're not in any kind of position to do this or to do this extensively. And then as you raised, then connecting in with those sort of coverage and reimbursement issues. You know, we have a still sort of a, a nascent effort. We've never had that investment in the capability to have the folks who are really dedicated for those that interaction with payers. We have found time and time again, as you've noted, with public-private partnerships, the value isn't just simply getting people together to deal with an issue. It is you build trust. You build right. understanding between the players, and it's very much the same thing with FDA and the payers. If we're in this position to spend the time, we will build those bridges, and it's those bridges 
that ultimately allow folks to break down the barriers and start talking and communicating and impacting in a very positive way. Yeah, Jeff, and I, th- I think if you talk to most people um, in the industry, from the investors to the operating companies and to those in and around the consulting side, I think everyone will say quite consistently that in the past five to seven years, the clarity around the regulatory process, while not perfect for every company, has been much improved and much more predictable but the uncertainty still exists on the payer side, right? Both in federal programs and private programs, but primarily in federal programs. And it feels like if we connect those two areas and we have complete certainty or at least clarity on the process, that's going to drive speed and innovation for patients probably more than anything else. And it sounds like that's sort of what you're thinking about as well. That is exactly right. You know, you mentioned my time on the Hill. Well, I also spent time on the payer side, you know, at CMS. And that's the way I have viewed the world for the past, you know, two decades and what we need to do. And I think being able to have that ability for us to engage and build those better bridges on, on the payer side can make a big difference. I also know, too, just the rich amount of of evidence that we have and rely on at the FDA that oftentimes on the payer side does not get that that same time of attention because it's looked at differently. And there are a number of innovations that we apply on on the data and things we do to take into account the patient perspective in a more scientific and rigorous fashion that I think can be informative on the payer side, but you've got to be able to build those bridges to have the discussions and then show it, demonstrate how that can have the positive impact and meet the needs of payers, meet the needs of the regulators and really meet the needs of the patients. Yeah, so it brings me to the next topic, and I don't want to debate or negotiate Medufa, but we are on our fifth iteration of the medical device user fee program. It started, Jeff, as you might remember, back in uh, 2001 in the Bush administration. I was part of that on the side of the administration, worked very closely with Senator Kennedy, David Nexon, and that group to get that first MADUFA up and and authorized. And now we're already in MADUFA 5. So as you're looking at the past, at at the last four, but also more importantly, reflecting on the upcoming Medufa 5, what are the one or two things that you really want to see come out of this, this next piece of legislation? You may have touched on it already, but let's come back to that. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you raised Medufa 5 and you, you, again, reminiscing about the past. And I got engaged in Medufa between Medufa 1 and 2 when I was over in the commissioner's office. And that's, you know, not terribly long, you know, a little bit, a few years after I left the Hill where right. when I was with Senator Kennedy, I happened to be reporting to David Nexon. Yeah. So it's a very small world. You know, <laughs> Adam Adufa, you know, five, I do think we have the opportunity to deal with this issue around engagement and our ability and capability to be able to work with developers. So too, to have the capability to stay on the leading edge with the science, but also understanding what developers are doing with their technology. You know, part of our challenge in getting our folks out there as part of the experiential learning program is just their ability to take the time to go do. 
And rather than a handful, you know, people every year get the chance, I think everybody in, you know, the program dealing with with products should be out there learning. And that is that is certainly a, a capacity issue as well. So Medufa 5 could be the place where we have that dialogue and, and see if we really, rather than going back to engagement pre-pandemic, do we want to go back to a new kind of engagement that's informed by what we experienced during the pandemic? Yeah, very well said. I, I wonder how many people are prepared for that conversation, not inside FDA, but and not inside the industry. I think we both understand it. But this has to be authorized and reauthorized by Congress. And I hope they're ready for that type of conversation as well, because it's really important to have bipartisan support as we try to move something like this forward. Well, maybe we need to talk about some of the old days in the Senate that, uh, you know, when people talk to each other and they had a dialogue, they were able to problem solve. What I don't want to do is go back to a meeting on Medufa 1 that I was in where there was a remarkable amount of partisan bickering that was occurring. This is a true story, Mm -hmm. Jeff. And it was probably about two in the morning. We were sitting in a conference room and then spilled into the energy and commerce main hearing room. And we were all getting kind of tired and I was getting very, very tired. Finally, I said, I've had enough of this, right? We're either going to do something or we're not. And David Nexon, who was respected by everybody on both sides of the aisle, stood up and says, we're going to do something and we're going to do it right now. And everybody put aside their partisanship and their silliness. We've got to get this right. And it was from that point on that everybody came together and worked to get Medufa 1 done. It wasn't perfect, the first one, right? But the first one set the stage for, I think, much of the progress we've made. And I think all of us are proud of that. I agree. And, you know, you raised 21st century cures before. I will say one of the aspects of 21st century cures, people focus on the legislation. I think a a bit about the process. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of credit to um, Fred Upton and uh, Dana DeGette, who also said, we're going to get people together to talk. And there were so many sessions where people just got around the table, had a conversation. In fact, for some of the pieces of legislation, uh, we got around the table and worked it out together. Right. And that sort of collaborative spirit, I think, led to some of the important provisions that made it into a 21st century cure. So, again, having that that spirit of uh, collaboration and having dialogue could maybe get us to the place where, uh, through Medufa, we have the capability to have a whole different kind of ongoing dialogue and collaboration. Yeah, that's right. And at the end of the day, that legislation impacts people's lives. And uh, we've seen that through all four iterations of Badufa. We've seen that through the changes you've made in your 10 years as center director. Innovation is good for patients. It's good for my daughter. It's good for many other people who are suffering from diseases that are just so difficult. And that collaboration is the way that we make people's lives better. And so I appreciate, Jeff, your time with us today. I appreciate all the work that you've done at FDA to make uh, innovation work better for the American people. And we look forward to continuing to work for with you in, uh, in the years to come. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, look forward to working with you, your team, and um, rest of the folks in industry. For those of you listening, thank you for tuning in. 
For more episodes, visit advimed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.